Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland Area Attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. If you haven't signed up for the weekly Politics Guys newsletter, check it out. In addition to my commentary and links, we've added a number of new voices, including Trey, a libertarian-leaning political scientist, and Zach, a Karl Marx-loving philosopher who has some interesting things to say about capitalism, among other things. Getting a newsletter is easy. Just go to our website, politicsguys.com, and sign up on the form you'll see there. You can also check out previous issues by clicking on the Past Newsletters link right up above the sign-up form. And now, on to this week's show. Our lead story this week will come as no surprise. It's the inauguration of Donald Trump as the 45th President of the United States. He comes into office with a favorability rating of just 42%, by far the lowest of any incoming president since the advent of modern polling. In his inaugural address, President Trump said that the government, which for too long had been run by and for Washington elites, would become the people's government again, and that by putting America first, he would end what he called this American carnage and bring back our jobs, our borders, our wealth, and yes, make America great again. Now, Democrats roundly panned the speech, which was seen as dark, dystopian, and insular, while many Republicans found at least a little bit more to like. Uh, What did you think, Jay? Um, again, there's always the caveat, and I, I don't know whether we'll have to keep saying this for the next four years or, or not, but, you know, you, there's there's sort of typical political speeches and there's Trump political speeches. And by Trump political speech stand, standards, um, this was, in, in many ways, I think it, it brought home the Trump message uh, with the m- minimum of the, the Trump uh, – shall we say, style, uh, overstatement and so forth. For, for example, you mentioned the, the carnage. And again, that was one of those those things that, you know, like carnage, really? Um, uh, it, it's, 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 yeah, it, it, it's hyperbole for most politicians, but for Donald Trump, it's almost restrained. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but I, I think there also was, was a lot uh, good in, in the speech in terms of uh, – Look, he, he's he's saying I'm here to to bring people together. I'm here for all Americans. Uh, I am I am uh, here to move the power, the locus of power, uh, from Washington back to uh, you know the rest of the country, um, which which is a very populist message, which was what you'd expect. But it, it was not in in quite as stark terms as as the typical Trump Trump speech. So overall, I I thought it was pretty good. It wasn't it wasn't overly long. Uh, it was more um, uh, uh, inspirational, hortatory sort of thing rather than than, you know, any sort of policy, uh, you know, plans. Um, it was very much teleprompted and so forth. So he didn't uh, didn't veer too far or, or, you know, mention Rosie O'Donnell or something. Um, so so all in all, I, I would say it was was pretty good and pretty well done again on the, the Trump scale. Yeah, I, um, I, I thought it was. Exactly what I would expect. I found it to be – well, I was one of those people who found it to be dark, dystopian and insular and uh, – uh, you know. But, but again, that's exactly what I expected from Donald Trump. I, I will say that if I thought that he could do half of what he says he'll do, at least economically, I have 
issues with him on other things, uh, serious issues, I might actually feel cautiously optimistic uh, about his presidency. But, you know, I don't believe that any president can do what Donald Trump says he can do. And even that aside, Jay, I think there's the issue of character. And it's not, you know, it's not just style. It's not just brashness. And it's not that so many liberals like me have you know, what some people call an aesthetic dislike of a guy who we honestly see as sort of a crass vulgarian. Uh, I mean, certainly I feel that way, but it's it's more than that. Based on what I've seen to this point, uh, Donald Trump is a liar on a scale unusual even for a politician. Uh, He's he's petty. He's vindictive. He's thin. He's he's a small man. Uh, He's a small man with a huge chip on his shoulder. And and he's a small man who seems to have not a single shred of humility, but an overabundance of, of, of hubris, I guess. And to me, that spells huge trouble. And, and of course, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I, I really do. I'm not just saying that to say that. I, I, I am going to, over the next four years, uh, assuming it's a four-year presidency, I'm going to try and, and, and find the good in Donald Trump and support the good in Donald Trump, both personally in him and in his policies. Because over the last eight years, that's exactly what I told my conservative friends to try to do for President Obama. Now, some of them did that and some of them refused to do that and just reflexively said Obama could give us, you know, could give us free beer and ponies and cotton candy and it would be evil um, because it well, comes I from would Obama. I disagree with that just on my conservative kind of free market principles well, and yeah. giving away stuff. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. But and then so I, I mean I'm I'm not optimistic. I'm I'm not optimistic at all. But I'm not going to reflexively just pan everything that comes from Donald Trump, Trump because it comes from Donald Trump. I, I guess yes. is what I'm saying. But I, I well you know I'd like to think <laughs> yeah I'd like to think that everyone can do that about every president again, which is not to say that I I think he's going to be anything but a complete disaster. I you know I hope I'm wrong. You know, something you hit on there, and, and it's it's something that occurred to me yesterday. Uh, I was trying to put together a piece for the newsletter, and then I I heard from some other people and other voices that, that uh, I listen to of liberals, and, and it occurred to me that I think we're looking at this from a completely different uh, standpoint. And, and, and you hit the nail on the head, and I think you're exactly right, that – there's only so much the president can do. Uh, again, this is the job. This is probably the most powerful uh, position in the world. Um, but there are still a whole lot of limits, uh, both constitutional uh, and just practical uh, limits of uh, there's only so much that human beings themselves can control. Sure. Uh, and I guess I, I, I look at it as, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think he – he is uh, a problem, and I gosh, I've said this for you know, I mean, well over a year now. Uh, Character-wise, I disagree with him on a lot of the statements he's made regarding trade, regarding a more insular uh, America. Um, uh, he's uh, he is crass, he is vulgarian, he is he is absolutely all those things. Um, but that said, I'm not I'm not sure how that. Well, I guess I don't know yet how that will translate into actually what happens and what he does. Um, but it occurred to me that, you know, there are a lot of folks, and maybe we'll talk about this later on, who are expressing this this genuine fear uh, of a Donald Trump uh, presidency. And again, as, as, you know, conservative, I guess, my sense is 
I've never been afraid of, of uh, what a particular president would do. I mean, I think there are some that I prefer more to others uh, for, for various reasons. But there's never been a, a sense of this person is, is going to – this one person is going to get me or, or cause something terrible to happen. Sure. Um, and I think maybe that, that goes to the overall view of, of what people think the government does and can do. And um, well, I I'm going yeah. to try to work that into more of a longer written piece. It's, it's tough to do just on the air. But, but I, I think you know, to the, the liberals out there listening, I mean understand we have a limited government – um, and, uh, I, again, I don't think Trump is the harbinger of, of fascism or, uh, uh, a theocracy or, or any of these, these terrible things that, that we keep hearing about. Well, I, I understand what you're saying. And I think in large part, I agree though. I also think that as a, you know, as a middle-class middle-aged white male, I have a lot less to fear from, uh, from a Trump presidency. But if I were, uh, if I were a minority female, for instance, or if I were a transgendered person or, or, or any of a number of other groups, what, I, mean, I, I guess think, that's, that's the thing. What, what exactly would the transgender person have to fear from Donald Trump. I mean, he's really been pretty positive on on uh, gay rights issues. Well, yeah, uh, I, I I think I think probably the uh, I think probably the biggest thing that a, a lot of people have to fear or, or understandably fear and this would be true not of Trump but just of Trump but any Republican president is uh, Supreme Court picks. Obviously, Donald Trump's going to have one. He may have more than one. Uh, a second thing is his nominee, some of his nominees, his nominee for attorney general. Certainly, Jeff Sessions certainly seems like somebody who is going to try to reverse a lot of what uh, President Obama's attorney generals did. So I think, or is it attorneys general? Uh, anyway, but the point being is that I think that there is some legitimate grounds for people to be Afraid, and I'm not saying that this is specific to Donald Trump. I think you're right. Personally, I think on a lot of social issues, he is definitely to the left of many other Republicans. And in certain respects, I actually almost would prefer a Trump presidency to say a Ted Cruz presidency or something like that. In certain respects, um, yeah. So no, I, but I, 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 I go back to the idea of of the uh, fear of he's going to undo things, and I guess it's. To me, I, again, I, I'm sure I'm afraid he'll screw up the economy. Uh, but when I say I'm afraid he'll screw up the economy, I don't mean I'm I'm laying awake at night uh, that that I'm actually uh, I, I just it's it's a different it's a different type. And again, sure. maybe this is something that's that's better to put down on paper yeah. than to, to try to talk about. Here. I understand. But, I, and I, I mean, I've never experienced the fear saying, what if I get pregnant and I can't get an abortion or something like that? I mean, that as a, as a white male, I get, well, it doesn't have my color, but as a male, that's something I certainly can appreciate. And I think there are a number of issues that, that, that I can't appreciate that any, uh, that any middle-class white male can't appreciate. But anyway, I see your point and I'm looking forward to reading that. You know, one other thing I wanted to mention is According to a number of reports, more than 60 House Democrats, which is nearly a third of all Democrats in the House of Representatives, actually skipped the inauguration in protest. And I wanted to get your take on this, Jay. I was wondering, do you feel like, well, this is a legitimate form of political protest or should they have shown up in your view? Uh, they should have shown up. I think it was it's sort of silly, sort of grandstanding. Um, what's a little more troubling is the the reasons um for example, John Lewis, who sort of led or you know 
kicked off spark to this this movement, claim that Trump is is illegitimate uh, based on the Russian hacking and so forth. Um, the illegitimacy that's that's sort of a big charge. It uh, certainly is. Say, you know, to say, look, this guy is not the legitimate president, and it, it's a big charge because it sort of excuses the opposition from from acting legitimately. It sort of takes everything out out of the system. Um, which I think is bad. Uh, inaugurations are are good for America, uh, in that they have this peaceful transition of power. Uh, everybody stands and has fake smiles, uh, you know. And but but that's important. Sure. Um, now, is it going to be important? A uh, couple weeks, couple months, couple years down the line, that sixty House Democrats didn't show? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Right. Uh, I think I think they're just going to look sort of sort of silly. Uh, for having done so. I mean, again, these well, I, folks didn't show, and I guess, well, they, they showed him. Um, and also, it's kind of funny, I, I don't know whether you knew this, um, John Lewis also boycotted uh, President uh, Bush's uh-huh. inauguration. Again, on the legitimacy question, um, you know, and actually, I would say there's there's a, a better argument there um, uh, based on, you know, what sure. happened in Florida and so forth. I mean, I, I think I think it's one thing to say, uh, I think his president is illegitimate because he actually didn't get the votes required to win the office. Right. Um, that's a good legitimacy argument. Uh, the argument that, well, the Russians somehow did this, I, I think is a bad legitimacy argument. But e- either way, uh, that was pretty quickly forgotten. And I think this will be pre- fairly quickly forgotten, too. Yeah. I, uh, I, and, my, I, I and, my, and my final point on that is the folks who skipped um, are ones who really are immune from any kind of political price for this. Right. So, you know, look, I mean, John Lewis represents a district that uh, is is heavily Democratic, uh, has always been and will always be. Um, there's there's no question of, of a challenger being uh, elected so forth. I think it's telling you don't have, you know, if you had senators from swing states who were boycotting, then that might be something different. Uh, but these these were folks who it was really a safe bet. They're ginning up the base. Um and they, they won't really pay any personal political price for it uh, in terms of, of electoral uh, politics. But I think they're going to be, you know, look, when there, there will come a time when one of, one of them needs something or other from the administration. And uh, there may be a price there because Trump is a guy who, who keeps score. So. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily – I mean I tend to agree with you in large part though. I certainly think they were well within their rights to do that. But but you're right. I don't think it's oh, going to oh, amount no, I mean, to a whole again, lot. Yeah. I'm not arguing and that they don't we, have a right yeah, to do it. No, it's, certainly. You know. I, I don't think it's really silly, but I, I see your Nobody point. Nobody has to go to inauguration. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, you know. Speaking of protests, uh, the day after, right? What only a few months ago, a lot of people uh, were sure would be the inauguration of the first female president of the United States. Uh, women marched in protest in Washington, not just in Washington, but in scores of cities around the country and around the world. In fact, according to the Women's March organizers, there have been almost 700 marches in total. And uh, these marchers and speakers vowed to protect the rights of women and other groups that they believe will be under attack in a Trump administration. So, uh, Jay, I was wondering, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on these protest marches? Well, yeah, let's start with the sure they're within their rights to do that. Um, I, I I don't know that it has, again, a major impact on anything that's that's going to happen. I think it's more a little la- launching pad um, for Democrats who are trying to get out in front, um, uh, in, particularly in some of these Senate races, uh, to appeal to, look, here's a group that we can count on uh, in the next electoral cycle. 
Um, you know, the, the, the idea of, I mean, I'm, again, it's, I'm not exactly sure what, what they're marching for. It's sort of a whole variety of things, right? It's, it's sort of, okay, there's the abortion piece. Uh, there's the Trump is a cad sort of piece. Uh, more than a cad, I mean, but, uh, but well, yeah, sure. But go ahead. I, yeah, uh, I, I know what you're saying. I think though, I it's can, more just the, Hey, we're, we're mad as hell. Uh, we would rather have seen Hillary be president. Um, uh, which, which again is all well and good and, and, you know, go protest and so forth. But, you, uh, I, the idea that, that, you know, the word resistance has been kicked around and, you know, this is, you know, <laughs> I, th- I, I think resistance is a good thing. I mean, not undemocratic resistance, but certainly I think this is a show of, you know, a show to everyone that there, there is a, a strong resistance to the sort of policies that a number of people expect from a Trump administration. Uh, though that being said, of course, let's, let's wait and see though. I mean, again, well, it's not I, going to I be, understand. I understand wait and see, but I, I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying that uh, I, I think this is totally understandable. Uh, you know, we kind of touched on this a few minutes ago. Uh, and my concern though, is that what often happens with these things is there's this initial burst of activity Marching is one thing, and marching is, I think, good and important and kind of sends a message. But what really matters in politics, there's uh, there's politics as what, uh, what's been called electoral spectacle, and then there's politics as what's been called organized combat. And, and right. politics is organized combat is really where you – that's in the trenches. That's the stuff that really matters, and I hope that that sort of energy and drive that, that we saw in the marches – it so often dissipates over time. It's hard to keep that up. I mean, Democrats know this from, you know, it's so hard for them to get out there for us, us, my team to get out our base in, in midterm elections and so forth. So marching, I think is great. But if we want to make any change, it's that kind of serious spade work that in the trenches sort of thing that's going to have to happen. And that's not glamorous and exciting. And that's not Scarlett Johansson getting up and giving speeches and so forth. That's just some dull, boring, drudgery showing up every day and putting in the work. And I certainly hope that my team does that. Um, you know, I, I also wanted to mention, you know, I, I mentioned earlier or right at the beginning that Donald Trump is almost certainly the least popular president to come in, come into office since we'll be able to measure that sort of thing. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit about whether or not that matters. And, and I think in a way it could very much matter. Uh, for instance, there are around there are sorry there are 21 house republicans in districts that he lost and uh, i think there are also maybe about four or five republican senators who could potentially oppose Donald Trump on various issues. I'm thinking uh, Susan Collins, John McCain, Rand Paul, Lisa Murkowski. Uh, and, you know, this could be a big deal considering that Republicans only have a two-seat majority in the Senate or I guess three if you count, you know, Mike Pence's ability to break ties as president of the Senate. So this is, I think, problematic in that in that Donald Trump wants to do all these big things. If Democrats stay united united and they can pick off a few Republicans here or there, it's going to be really, really difficult for him to do some of the stuff that he says he definitely will do. I, I think that's I think that's right. I think probably the bigger problems are going to be with uh and McCain's and, and uh so forth. Um uh, I, I think uh, the the main delegation is is something that uh, Republicans have never taken for granted. <laughs> anyway, sure. Uh, 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 Susan Collins might might even be uh, uh, called a rhino, uh, but uh, yeah, and of course there's going to be um, 
opposition, and it's it's not even opposition uh, that's political or ideological. A lot of it's just personal, and it's it's about maneuvering uh, for for you know where we are years down the road. Uh, it's based on things. There's going to be there's going to be institutional opposition, which actually I think is a really good thing. Uh, of of some people saying, you know, look, we we will defend the integrity of of the Senate. Uh, you know, it's this is where we reassert the uh, power of the legislative branch, uh, and I think those are those are good things. I mean, especially from a conservative view, uh, that you don't want uh, sort of an imperial presidency. So, uh, you know, to the extent that that he has opposition there, I think that's great. But the Again, the big thing, and and I know we're going to talk about this this on the uh, well, Wednesday program, but there's there's so much that's just a, a wait and see. I mean, with legislation, it's it's difficult, and it's hard to it's hard to tell where people are going to be until the bill's drafted. Um, the other piece of, of Trump being unpopular, it's not necessarily a matter of he's got these broad uh, poll that says he's unpopular here, there, or anywhere, um, but it's where he's unpopular. So, for example, if if you are a senator from a state that Trump carried, uh, you know, his his nationwide unpopularity might not matter to you at all. Um, and again, that's a that's a function of, of federalism and the function of the way senators are elected and the way uh, uh, House House members are elected. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's tough to say exactly what's going to happen. Um, but I think there's going to be enough legislative massaging of of uh of the bills that actually come out um that that it's gonna it's gonna get worked out and trump again trump's a deal maker he'll i i think he'll make the deals when he that he needs to make but we, we shall see we will see we'll so. see yeah absolutely you know the senate also has been the, the inauguration wasn't the only thing that happened this week hard to believe but the senate's been really really busy they've held confirmation hearings on a number of uh, president trump's nominees in fact on friday large bipartisan majorities confirmed james mattis as secretary of defense and michael kelly as homeland security secretary and Repub- and again those are the the mattis pick was was something that there was the idea that Democrats are going to rally around and against and so forth. And that, that really didn't happen. You had a lot of prominent Democrats coming forward and actually praising Mattis and uh, it, it, his nomination sailed through uh, both the nomination and then the vote to, uh, to give him sort of the exception because he'd only been out of the military three years. Right. Right. And, you know, Republicans had hoped to confirm more of President Trump's nominees, but there were a number of Democratic objections to what what they see as, an, well, overly rushed hearings on nominees that really hadn't been adequately vetted. Uh, and I, I think those were some, you know, reasonable, uh, reasonable objections. I don't think that Democrats are trying to delay for delay's sake. There have been a lot of issues with people getting their uh, getting their forms and, and so forth in. And a lot of these billionaires in, in Trump's cabinet, of course, have much more complex uh, business situations and so forth. And so I think it's important as part of the advise and consent role that the Senate uh, uh, not delay, certainly unduly, but but take its time. That that said, I believe that uh, unless a nominee is manifestly unqualified or, or crooked or something like that, that the president has a right to have his team in place. And so it yeah. seems like that's pretty much going to happen with, with President Trump. Now, 
I wanted to mention some of the highlights, uh, such as they were, of this week's hearings. Uh, Department of Energy nominee Rick Perry admitted that he's changed his mind about wanting to debo- abolish the Department of Energy. So I guess that's good. Uh, also, he should have stuck with it. You know, he should have stuck with that, that my first step was director abolish, to abolish the that, department. That, but, well, you know, yeah. it turns out, though, that uh, a number of Perry insiders just said, well, when he made that statement, he didn't actually know what the Department of Energy did. And now he somebody told him what it did. And he said, oh, OK, well, in that case, I guess I'm not as against it as I thought. That so, Department of Energy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a uh, misleading title. But, you know, there are also some really contentious exchanges between Democrats and Education Secretary nominee Betsy DeVos. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Commerce Secretary nominee Wilbur Ross vowed very strongly to push for a renegotiation of NAFTA, which, again, we would have expected given what Donald Trump has said on as, as yeah, a campaign. I, I, I do want to mention some things on the Ross nomination and those hearings. Yeah, let's just, what he also what he also said was, you know, again, he's talking about renegotiation, but the bigger push seemed to be on things like, uh, uh, you know, compliance, uh, and, and punishing noncompliance with uh-huh. existing agreements, uh-huh. which is really a, a different animal. Uh, than the renegotiating, Trump, yeah, renegotiating. We're going to tear up, and it's it's more just look. We're going to take a, a more aggressive approach to uh, uh, monitoring and calling uh, other nations on things like like dumping and so forth that are already prohibited in the trade agreements that we have. Uh, it's just a question of of how vigorously we would seek to enforce them. Right. So and- I, I mean, I think I think when you're talking about vigorous enforcement, I think that gave a lot of. Um, uh, 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 comfort to to the free trade Republican types uh, who are against tearing up agreements. I think we're all for, I mean, enforcing the agreements we have. I think that makes perfect sense and is good policy. So, well, we should yeah, point out from that's a, one of those wait and see. For, well, from a practical matter, it's a lot easier to do that than it is to renegotiate agreements as well, because you can't just tell Mexico and Canada, well, you're going to do this because I say so. So this is, uh, you know, a lot, uh, a lot easier politically to do. You know, I also wanted to mention that in her confirmation hearings, uh, UN ambassador nominee Nikki Haley actually said that Russia is guilty of war crimes in Syria and that additional sanctions on Russia should at least be considered for its incursion into Ukraine. Uh, and so that, I think, was maybe the most uh, uh, unusual, interesting thing I- I've heard that kind of goes against what uh, Donald Trump has said in the past. But to me, this is kind of in line in what we've seen from a number of Trump nominees, that they've kind of tried to put a distance between themselves and at least the Donald Trump of the campaign trail. Uh, you know, and so this is not not terribly surprising, I guess, to me. I, there aren't a whole lot of these nominees who I think are are other disasters. Though Rick Perry, uh, she's I don't know, and Ben Carson is another one. But uh, a lot of these nominees are kind of standard issue Republican type folks who I would have expected under Donald Trump or any other Republican. I think right. These these are are in many ways the same type of nominees, if not the same exact people that that you would have gotten. Uh, with a Marco Rubio or a Ted Cruz uh, administration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before we move on, we'd like to thank our new supporters this week. First, we have Chris from Los Angeles, California, who is a new continuing monthly supporter through Patreon. Uh, All right. Thank uh, you, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, Chris writes, Mike and Jay, you guys are doing a great job moving beyond partisanship. It is sorely needed in this environment. Thanks. 
Next, we have Tristan from Rixieville. I hope I'm getting that right. Rixieville, Virginia, who's another one of our new Patreon continuing monthly supporters. Um, when I got in touch with Tristan, he mentioned that he was in D.C. for the Women's March, and he joked, uh, don't tell Jay, or, or maybe do tell Jay. Uh, oh, so, that's fine, Tristan. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tristan. We really appreciate <laughs> it. You know, it was a, a great week, actually, for new monthly supporters on Patreon. Our third new monthly supporter is Dustin from Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, Indi- uh, Dustin is an active duty Air Force ROTC instructor at Indiana University. Very cool. Thank yeah. you, Dustin. Uh, Dustin writes, I just signed up for a monthly Patreon donation because I really believe in your show and the good it can do. And I also heartily believe in paying people for the good content that they produce. You and Jay have done a tremendous job with your podcast, representing a rational, reasonable discussion on contentious issues that I can appreciate in this day and age. Wow! Thank yeah, you. I thought that was really nice. You know, I, it feels like I almost I could have written that myself, but it would have <laughs> sounds like bragging. So we really do appreciate that. Thank you, Dustin. Um, finally, uh, we have Lorena from San Diego. Didn't have a message, but we definitely appreciate your uh, your support of the show, Lorena. Thank you, Lorena. Yep. And now, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Chris, Tristan, Dustin, and Lorena did last week. Just go to politicsguys.com and click on either the PayPal or Patreon donation links you'll see there. And, you know, whether it's a dollar or a hundred dollars, every single contribution means a lot to us, right, Jay? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, and we and, really. And again, I wish we should mention. Um, neither Mike nor I actually make any money from. <laughs> no. well, we are not living living every, large every here. Dollar, every dollar you uh, you you uh, contribute goes directly to uh, things like um, server uh, maintenance and uh, yeah. uh, no gold plated microphones or anything like that. Yeah. We, we are not living large on this. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, of course, especially helpful for us to have those continuing monthly supporters uh, because it, it's something really easy to set up in, in Patreon or PayPal. Um, and that really helps us because it can make us easier for, for us planning for the future and that sort of thing. And, of course, if you ever need to cancel those, that's really simple to do as well. And finally, I should mention it would be a big help if you could spread the word about the show by sharing or retweeting our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter and leaving reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes. Okay, moving on. You know, before President Obama flew off for a much-deserved vacation, he spent his last days as president granting a number of people clemency most notably whistleblower Chelsea Manning. And over the course of his last Ooh. week in office, we'll get to that. Whistleblower. Yeah, well, oh. we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, over the course of his last week in office, President Obama commuted the sentences of 330 prisoners, and that brings his grand total to 1,715 commutations during his time in office. That makes him the most, I don't know, commutatious president in most history. commutable. Commutable. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, previous presidents have tended to favor pardons over commutations, because commutations generally are seen as politically riskier because pardons oftentimes are granted to people years after they've actually been released for prison, where commutations actually get people out of prison sooner than they otherwise would, which kind of makes them a heck of a lot more useful to people uh, uh, in, in, you know, the people in it, question. It is, it is literally a get out of jail free card. Yes, exactly. So, yes. Uh, Jay, I knew you'd have some thoughts on this. Uh, let's talk about both the Obama's record number of commutations in general, but I know before we get to that, you really want to talk about the Chelsea Manning thing in particular, No, actually, right? actually I'll, let's talk about the, the, the number first, because okay. I'm, I'm going to say something nice uh, about, about Obama. All right. In that a, a large number of these of the the three thousand uh, 
1,715. Yeah. 1,700 or 300 last week. Um, we're uh, nonviolent drug offenders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think there's a good case to be made. And this is a conversation I think we're going to have to have as a country uh, over the next four years uh, about uh, how do we handle drug offenses. Um, there was a, a policy that was put in place back in the early 90s that was very much a lock them up, throw, them, throw away the key. Uh, that was in, in large part a response to the crack epidemic that that you know was very much tied to violence, gang violence and so forth. And uh, Congress, Congress got tough and took away a lot of judges' ability to uh, to to uh, set set a sentence in, in where they wanted to be. There were sort of these mandatory minimums, um, and and I think there's a good question of you know from a if you want to take the, your Democrat liberal uh, feel good uh, bleeding heart type. Uh, view on this uh how how you know how should these people really be in jail is it is it cool to keep them in there for you know essentially addictions and so forth uh and from the the more uh hard hardline um uh conservative standpoint is look this is a huge government expenditure that doesn't seem to be working right uh so so i i think i think that's that is good that a lot of these sentences were commuted um uh, as far as the low-level drug offenders who are spending probably much more time uh, in prison than than what their crimes warranted. Um, now, on to uh, before, uh, before we get to, before we get to that though, I, yeah, I want to say that obviously I I agree with this certainly, and and I think that you know this is this is how policy is is supposed to work. A policy is not supposed to be in place forever. We we look at the evidence, we see what we did right and what we did wrong, and we make adjustments. and And I think this is one area where uh, we might just possibly be able to get some sort of meaningful legislation that is not only going to satisfy conservatives who are concerned with, you know, spending a lot of money for something that isn't working, but also satisfy a lot of liberals who feel that there are a number of uh, aspects of injustice of, of locking uh, a number of these people up. So this is this is one of these few areas, I think, where I can see over the horizon the possibility maybe of, of something really good happening. And certainly I, I hope that I hope that is the case. So anyway, Anyway, now on to uh, Chelsea Manning. Chelsea, or as uh, we know, used to know her, Bradley. Um, I, I think that is uh, absolutely horrible, uh, terrible, <laughs> the worst Obama decisions uh, that he could have made. And, and let me tell you why. First, I, I don't believe Chelsea Manning is a whistleblower. Uh, she is a uh, spy. I mean, this was a, a situation where this was a person who had access to Highly classified documents, um, most of it uh, international diplomatic cables. Uh, it contained information regarding uh, sources. Uh, it contained, contained uh, information regarding assessments of, of other countries' capabilities, of, of the personalities. And, and look, some of it was, uh, it's been pointed out, look, this was more just uh, diplomatic, um, uh, you know, chatter, diplomatic um gossip, if you will, uh, about what some people think about others uh, behind their backs and without, uh, you know, really long lasting uh, impact. Um, But some of it wasn't. And there was a whole lot of it. And this was a person who went into the military and swore to protect and defend the United States of America and took this information and handed it off to to WikiLeaks. Uh, And and I, I, I think that's a I mean, 
that's a really, really big crime. Uh, my concern is there is some political correctness at work here. Would this commutation have occurred if uh, we were still talking about Bradley Manning rather than Chelsea Manning? Okay, you know, I, I know I know there are a lot of people who are going to be upset by me saying that, but I I think that's something that, that that's a factor here. Well, well, I'll agree with you in part. I mean, in part, the first part where you talked about the the crimes that uh, that Manning Manning committed, and I certainly think that while some people see Chelsea Manning as a whistleblower, it's entirely reasonable to see Chelsea Manning not as a whistleblower, but as as a spy, someone who someone who violated the the oath that she took and 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 I think that's entirely reasonable and absolutely it, I believe that a prison sentence was warranted and, and was just now where I think we part company is uh this is a, a deeply emotionally disturbed person uh this is somebody who's going through uh, an incredible uh an incredible thing that that we certainly can't can't appreciate this gender dysmorphic disorder and somebody who has tried to kill herself several times and so i think under circumstances like this i i think that the the commutation made sense and i don't think it was so much a political correctness thing i just think it was somebody who was just who who just screwed up in a major way, obviously, definitely broke the law, and who was just horribly, horribly messed up emotionally, and President Obama didn't want to make this a death sentence for Chelsea Manning, and so he commuted her sentence, and I think that while that was, I can understand why people would see it the other way, I think on balance that that was the right move. You know, I might have even agreed to a commutation that was was less, if you want to, the sentence was 35 years uh, if you wanted to uh, bring it down to, say, 10 years or something like that, uh, you know, th- with the idea that 35 years for someone who committed this crime when they were this young and, and goofed up um, is is uh, is immoral, is uh, is inappropriate. Um, but but the fact that she's going to be out uh, next March, uh, that. That is is even more troubling. I mean, this is and, and again, I'm I'm not sure. I think a president could commute a sentence that would just reduce it from say 35 to 10. I'm I, that's within the commutation power. Um, it also, I think, just sends the the wrong message and and exposes, I think, some some hypocrisy on the left. Of you know, we've been hearing for the last several weeks about uh, the danger of Russian hacking and. Uh, how important uh, keeping all this confidential information is uh, secret and so forth. And then when you've got one of these, you know, probably either the the second biggest, probably next to Snowden, um, uh, offender uh, and uh, doing this, I mean, what message does does that send uh, that uh, we're taking national security sure. seriously? So yeah, that, I mean, that was my big problem there. The, the second one, the other, um, uh, I guess you'd call it um, – uh, celebrity commutee, uh, Oscar Lopez Rivera, uh, who is a member of the FLAN, uh, which is a sort of radical uh, Puerto Rican independence uh, movement, uh, was all his sentence was also commuted, uh, and that I find troubling because this is a guy who is um, essentially a terrorist. He worked with a group that committed bombings. Uh, he helped plan the bombings, as I understand, uh, and and actually killed people. And and to say. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's troubling. And then also I think something else that's troubling is um, he was offered clemency uh, by President Clinton 
back in 1999, uh, but refused it. Um, and and sort of also in the same thing, refused to renounce violence. I mean, sort of like, would you like to get out of jail if you renounce violence? Now stick with the violence and stay in jail. I mean, if you want to applaud his principle on that, I suppose you can. Um, but uh, I I I think that's again really troubling. I don't know why uh, we would uh, uh, release a essentially a terrorist. So. Well, I, I know, and there are a number of people who call Other than him. Uh, he's a celebrity terrorist. Well, I know there are a number of people who call him uh, not a terrorist, but a political prisoner, and point out that he wasn't charged directly in any of the attacks and so forth. But but I think I agree with you certainly that that's a that's a somewhat uh, that, that's a much more controversial decision, and I don't know that uh, I I would necessarily looking at the same facts have reached that decision. So I think you know there's there's something to that perhaps. So we can maybe at least somewhat agree on on that being a lot more questionable. Um, well, you know, I think that about does it for for today's show. Uh, so everyone, thanks for listening. And of course, if you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions for our Ask Politics Guys, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us through email at mail at politicsguys.com and our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are on Twitter at politicsguys. And we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to us. And sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also really helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. And if you enjoy our podcast, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.